Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and thank you for joining me for this bite-sized episode of the Life Lessons podcast with me, Simon Mundy, in which we revisit one nugget from one of my previous conversations and have a closer look. As Winston Churchill said, I like things to happen, and if they don't, I like to make them happen. And that's what this bite-sized episode is all about creating opportunities rather than waiting for things to fall in your lap. It's clearly an important attitude to have. So if you know someone that could do with embracing this outlook, have a listen and please then do consider sharing this episode. I spoke to the award-winning author and journalist Morris Hamilton, who explained how he got to do the job he loved in part by taking motivation from the incredible story of the most successful Formula One driver of the early 20th century, who overcame immense odds and tragedy to get into motorsport, as Morris explains. Now, Morris himself had no qualifications as such, but he did have a burning desire to follow his passion, which initially looked impossible. Let's fast forward to 1973 and the Monaco Grand Prix, where you decided to write about what was going on around you, but from a different perspective than people were writing at that time. So how did you get to this point and how fundamental was this? So I'd had two and a half years in England at that time, and I'd uh, gone to every motor race under the sun, but I still was on the spectator side of the fence. I wasn't involved and I was looking more and more at these people uh, who were working in this sport. And and I was becoming more and more convinced that people make a living out of it. So surely I can, but how on earth do I do that? Because I wasn't going to be a driver. I wasn't good enough and I didn't have the money anyway. I wasn't mechanically minded. So I w- went to 73 Monaco Grand Prix, as you say. And now I'm, I'm looking at these journalists once more on the track and thinking, I really got to become one of those. What on earth can I do? I wonder if I could write. 
So uh, I was looking at the journalists and I'm thinking, well, they're going to write about the actual race. They're going to do race reports. They're going to do the inside story. Why don't I try doing the outside story, which is sitting in the grandstand with fans about the, the anticipation, the excitement of coming to Monaco, the staying in the hotel, seeing the stars passing by, which they could do in those days in the bars in the evening, uh, being a part of this wonderful scene. So I made notes all the way through the weekend and scraps of paper, came home, had all these scraps of paper, put them all in order, and I sat down and started to draft a piece. So I put that together, and I had my little Olivetti portable typewriter, and I pecked it out on that, and I read it, and I thought, yes, yeah, okay, that's all right, but you know, how good is it? You don't know, do you? So uh, I had a great friend called John Taylor. He was a massive motorsport fan. That's how I met him, actually. And I gave it to him, and I didn't say I'd written it. I said, listen, John, I've just been given this to read. Tell me what you think. So he took it away, came back, and he said, oh, he said, bloody good. He said, bloody good, really good. Who did that? And I said, I did. He said, wow, can you get it published? So I got it typed out cleanly again and photocopied it and sent it off to various magazines. So so that was quite a turning point in one way, but then not a lot happened after that. I mean, that says a lot about thinking outside the box, as it's coined, about thinking sideways, about being creative, because the style of article that you wrote, that wasn't something that was being done at that time. And something else that I found interesting about what you said is how you picked out your friend and got him to give your work the once over. And I'm interested to what degree were you anxious that he might say it was rubbish? Did you have nerves about how your work was going to be received by your friend? Yeah, very much. And if he'd said, if he'd said, oh, that's all right. Yeah. You know, I would have probably gone, okay, I'll just put it aside and that would have been that. So there was a bravery even in a simple decision like that. And bravery is key in terms of making stuff happen. So you, you sent the article off, you're expecting your phone to ring off the hook, but it clearly didn't. To what degree were you discouraged by that? And at what point did you realise that you had to, again, go and make things happen of your own accord? There, that That was the start of quite a bleak period I have to say Simon because uh, you know I'd come up with this idea of the article I thought of it as something different I sent it out and the phone doesn't ring nothing no response nothing from anybody and I sent it to several magazines I spent to every magazine I could think of in the UK and even some abroad and just nothing you know I'm at that time I forget what I was selling houses I think and I was just fed up with the whole thing and just wondering where high on earth was I going to get into this game? What was I going to do? And these strange things, you've, you've, you've touched on the point that things happen in your life, little little moments occur that are reflecting on them meant to be. Now, my dad um, had a great friend called Hugh Greer. And uh, Hugh Greer played rugby for Ireland and ran a secondhand bookshop in Belfast. And I was back in at home seeing my mum and dad and Hugh must have been around to see them, and he and he had a book, and he said, "Look," he said, "This book's just come in." He said, "You might, you might, might be of interest to you. You might want to take it away and read it." And I said, "Yeah, thanks." And it was called "A Racing Driver's World," and it was the autobiography of a racing driver called Rudolf Caracciola. Now, the thing about Caracciola was that he raced in the twenties and thirties. My dad knew all about him. I knew very little. I just knew he'd been really good. He'd been one of the top drivers of the era, but I didn't know any more than that. So I said, thanks for the book. And I brought it 
back to Ealing and I'm just sitting in, in my little room reading this book and I am utterly amazed by the story that's coming out in front of me. The Cracciola was from a, quite a humble background. In those days, there was no way of getting into motorsport. There was no junior formula like there is today. There was no structure. Uh, there were Grand Prix drivers and they were generally for the, the, the rich and people who were of influence. And he just couldn't see how he was going to get into it. But yet he thought he would. And he uh, he, he did various jobs working in, in uh, machine shops and stuff to try and understand the technical side of, of cars. Uh, he then went to Stuttgart. He, he left his home and went to Stuttgart and got a job as a salesman. He told me he wanted to be a Grand Prix driver and Mercedes laughed and said, yeah, okay, right, or whatever. But he got a job as a salesman from Mercedes and he persuaded them eventually to give him a car to enter just in a hill climb. And they did, and he won. So then they entered for another race and he won that. So then they talked about him going to the Grand Prix team eventually. They put him in a Grand Prix car and he won a Grand Prix. Then Mercedes withdrew. Suddenly he has without a drive. So he goes to Alfa Romeo gets in with Alfa Romeo, starts to win races, and they withdraw. So now he's back to square one. So with another driver, he team, they, they form a little team themselves. And they are racing. He's racing this car. It's a Maserati, I think. Or it might have been Alfa Romeo uh, at the uh, Monaco Grand Prix. And he crashes very heavily into a wall at about 80 miles an hour. And these big front, end, front engine cars. And he is severely injured. He he. Badly breaks his right leg, shatters his pelvis. He's taken out of the car. He's put in a chair, can you imagine, in a shop nearby. He's then carried into an ambulance over the cobble streets. And he said the pain, he could feel the pain from the tips of his toes to the, to the roots of his hair. It was just horrendous. And in those days, you know, we're talking the 1930s, uh, they had x-rays, but not a lot else. They established that there'd been these terrible fractures. And he was put in plaster for four months. And during that time, you know, there's no physiotherapy, obviously, or anything like that. He didn't know whether he'd be able to walk again, never mind drive again. So they took the plaster off. They had a look, had another x-ray, and put him back in plaster for another two months. Can you imagine? Just sitting around. During the course of this, his wife, Charlotte, Charlie, uh, is killed in an avalanche. So you can imagine... Uh, what this man is going up against. Eventually, he gets the plaster taken off. He's still in pain, but he goes back to Mercedes, who have now come back to racing, and says, I'm okay, I'm, I can drive, I'm fine. And for the rest of his life, he, he he actually died naturally, but for the rest of his life, he was in great pain when he put his right foot on the throttle and the brake. You can imagine the pressure needed, but he didn't tell them that. And he went on to win over 140 races, of important races, not all Grand Prix, but very important races. We didn't have a world championship then. If there had been a world championship, he would have been world champion at least three times. He was the man, okay? So what's the point of all of this? Well, the point is that the opening chapter uh, of his book, the first paragraph, this is what he said. I believe that every man can achieve the goal he strives for. I also believe that every man who feels in himself a strong desire to do a certain job will eventually end up doing that job no matter how many detours he has to take to get there. And then he gives you the story that I've just told you. I read that and I thought, my God, that's incredible. So I took that first uh, paragraph. I wrote it out longhand, stuck it on the wall above my little writing desk in the room and thought, right, that's it. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And then that led me to think, right, come on, you're a salesman. 
why don't you act like one? Why don't you go and bang on the doors of these magazines that you've sent the article to and demand to speak to somebody to sell yourself? And kind of long story short, I got I went to one magazine called Competition Car. Uh, the editor there was a guy called Nigel Roebuck, who became not only one of the best writers in the in the UK, but also a, a very good friend. And they published it. And that was the start of it. Thank you for listening to this bite-sized episode of the Life Lessons podcast. If you could please share this episode on social media or with someone who you think might benefit, I'd be immensely grateful. Until next time, have a great week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.